0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Bernardo Batis Lazo. Thank you for being with us again in New Books Network. Today we have Jeremy Lan talking about his uh, recent book, Colonial Ports, Global Trade and the Roots of the American Revolution, 1700 to 1776, published by Brill. And uh, Jeremy, thank you for being with us today. Jeremy, so much, is, Jeremy is a postdoctoral researcher in economic history at the School of Business, Economics, and Law at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden and a visiting scholar at the University of Helsinki. He completed his PhD at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States, and has worked for various institutions such as the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, the University of Helsinki, the University of, uh, i you pronounce that one, and Appalachian State University, his research includes uh, global maritime trade and the early world, smuggling, colonial American history, war, and war economy, state capacity, digital history, and database development. He's also the the currently the meeting coordinator for the Economic History Association and has held a uh, organizational post in a number of other uh, learned society. Is currently living in Gothenburg, Sweden, with his uh, wife and child. Again, Jeremy, thank you for joining us. And my first question. Thank you again for having me. And my first question would be, um, how did you become an academic? Since you, you know, done all of this other work before or after? Well, uh,
1: frankly, it's me coming into contact with economic historians that are fantastic, and I was initially going to school to become a teacher for history in high school, uh, discovered that I really liked the research and writing aspect of things, and then I began my master's program, and that's when I ran into my uh, former advisor but also current colleague and co-author, Yari Aloranta, who's now at Helsinki but was at Appalachian State when I was working on my master's, and he made me fall in love with economic history which is, you know, a tough thing to say, but sometimes uh, you just find the right person and place, and that um, he gave me uh, a lot of sort of good advice and and, and made it um, interesting to me, and I think that's part of the struggle, uh, is finding something that you, you find interesting. Um, and then after that, it was just a matter of getting into PhD programs and then finding the next job opportunity that comes with it, which is difficult coming from the history side of things, um, with economic history, but, um, uh, but I've had opportunities in Europe now and and it's becoming, uh,
0: it seems, the future seems bright, so. Good. And since you have worked on both sides of the Atlantic, um, tell us a little bit about, or, or what would you give advice? um to other early career researchers on how to write a monograph or you know finding a publisher or if it's really worth the the hassle um for as a historian we tend to move towards
1: monographs especially with dissertations and so my dissertation was written with the intention to eventually turn it into a a publishable monograph and that starting from that perspective sort of helped get this ready for that process. But even then a dissertation is not a monograph and so there takes it takes a moment to really uh, think about where you want to target what's your target uh, what's your target audience, what's your target publisher um, and then there's so many options available sometimes that it makes it sort of a uh, daunting task initially. but oftentimes it's just talking, to the publishers who are at the conferences that you go to, or just even um, emailing acquisitions editors and just asking, is this research something that is is publishable as a monograph, but more importantly, are you interested in publishing this? Um, And as an early career scholar, you have to think about a couple of things. One, um, is it going to be a good quality publication? Does it have the weight that you need to sort of get across the finish line on job applications, et cetera. But the other thing is also about time to completion. And so some of the bigger publishers like Cambridge or Oxford will take, uh, quite a while. And whereas other publishers like Brill are very good, have a very strong, um, peer review process, but the time to getting it to the end of the, the end product is, is quite a bit shorter because they don't have, um, a a significant backlog of publications and, and, and press. And so I think that is something to keep in mind, um, as you go forward with that. It's more practical advice than it is sort of, uh, theoretical advice. But I think that's, um, if you're thinking about getting a job and staying in the academic career, that you have to think about getting it done. Um, and that's important.
0: And let me push this, uh, practical side for a moment, since you Had your PhD in the US, and you have worked in Europe now for some a couple of good couple of years. What? How do you see the differences in in organizational culture of universities, and also in how they receive this type of publication, in terms of career progression? So
1: there's two sides to this. In in the United States, there's a Uh, and especially in history departments, there's a sort of reliance upon the monograph as the way to get tenure. And so that was the system that I was trained in, and so it was sort of... Monographs are also still important in Europe as well, but they tend to sort of think about journal articles as sort of the main objective. But I think it is ultimately a result of the sort of different types of university and academic systems that are on different sides of the ocean. Um, In history departments, uh, they tend to be a little bit more insular. They don't think about uh, social... They, they, they get divided up from sociologists and from political scientists a bit more frequently, whereas in this the universities that I've been in, like uh, the University of Helsinki and at um, Gothenburg, there's a lot of different types of scholars that come in, and there's actually economic history units but they're often part of bigger departments like for example my own is the department of economy and society where we have uh human geographers entrepreneurship and then economic his- economic and business history all sort of under the same roof and they're, com- they're having conversations with one another when you have coffee together you tend to talk about things and i think that's an, an important distinction that you see between european uh Uh, institutional structures and, um, uh, the U S. And so I think when it comes to whether or not the monograph is acceptable or not, um, I think they're quite acceptable in both arena. The U S puts a bit more emphasis on it, whereas the Europeans tend to put more emphasis on the, uh, the big time journal publications, but I also don't, they're also very much interested in the monographs as well. Um, especially As we move more towards open access type of world where that, that becomes, uh, more readily available than it used to be.
0: Great. Let's, let's move on to the book itself. And you make a very interesting and detailed introduction in setting the the scene. I'm going to ask you to expand on that in in a moment. I I just want to, um, take what I think it's the, the main, uh, Argument or hypothesis of the of the work, which is um, to to establish the current view and argue that Boston, New York, and Philadelphia were not really three different ports, but part of a larger ecosystem. That that way, would um, in a in a in a short um, term. So, would you would like to tell us a little bit about more about? how you came to, to this argument and how then you, uh, unpacked it into the, um, seven, six chapters that are in the, in the book. Please.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the way I came to the subject is actually, a, you know, in many ways, um, a similar way to, I came to the academic career where having conversations with the scholars that were leading my, or at least supporting my career and advising my career. When I sat down with my advisor at Georgia State University, Gulam Nadri, uh, I had initially d- intended to write something about the economic impact of the military occupation in Boston just before the Revolution, uh, and then and through the first year or so of the Revolution, and and I, he sat back, listened to what I had in mind, and then asked one very important and quite a question that I didn't really think about before, and that was well, why Boston? Why did the British occupy Boston? And when he asked me this question, I didn't quite know the answer to that. And I think that led me on many different paths as to, okay, well, why why was Boston so important to, to the British? And why why was it that this was a place of hotbed resistance, uh, a hotbed of resistance? And so why, why is it that the British were willing to spend... Um, Quite precious military resources and naval resources, for that matter, in suppressing what um, has often been called backwater uh, colonies. Right, and so I started looking into it a little bit more deeper, and then I realized that these trade connections and this this, this trade that was flowing through not just Boston but New York and Philadelphia, which, uh, by the way, were also occupied at various points during the uh, American Revolution, and And I realized that these three cities had a a quite outsized influence on um, North America and really the Atlantic economy as a whole. And so I was actually looking a bit more about why they even wanted to um, suppress this rebellion in the first place. And that led me to this argument that I developed. Um, And I think it's important to also note that uh, it was sort of the key point of the occupation to try to uh, stamp down on this sort of economic, uh, growing economic power of Boston and also these ports as well, sort of make a, an example uh, to the other ports that, hey, this could, this could also happen to you. And so I think this was a key, um, key sort of, uh, reasoning for why I wanted to get into this. And, and, and it's not what I ended up thinking I was going to, I started to do, but ultimately you end up with something. Uh, this is usually how it happens with dissertation research anyway, but this was a particularly strong, um,
0: question that he asked. Yeah. Uh, it is very much the case with most, most dissertations. Not, not everybody has that laser, uh, for, you know, being focused to, to finish exactly where, where they wanted to. But, um, so it's a, it's a very interesting story There's somehow. It it reminded me, although I I didn't see that that much of of, of the discussion on on the industrial districts and into uh that um the discussion around international trade that for example Michael Porter has adopted in in that you know what is it that it's competing and and I don't know if you would like to explore a little bit more of, of that um. If you mean how are they competing with one another, or is it more how are they competing more globally? Um, more globally, uh, because yeah. you you do make a point both in the book and and now that it is important even in a framework of mercantilism how they are interlinking the metropolis with other ports that it's not. Um, It's not only that they are an entry point into the the expanding frontier, but that they are also having this interconnection with, with other parts. And, and it's the imposition of a more, um, for lack of a better word, orthodox or restrictive mercantilistic approach that it's where, where things kind of, um. You know, there, there's a number of pressures that, that are coming out and and make things, you know, uh, end up in, the, in, the, in an armed struggle.
1: Yeah. So, I, I think one of the most important things to note is that um, when you talk about these three cities, they are indeed part of at least what the British view as a mercantilistic empire, where that empire is supposed to be self-sufficient, trade within itself, not trade with other places. Uh, and only the metropole, that is London or the main islands of the UK, um, are to trade directly with foreign powers, that being France or Portugal or otherwise. But the reality is always much more murkier than the law states it's going to be. I think we all know this to be the case. Um, But I think um, in previous research, there's been a bit of a sort of a an assumption that these rules and regulations tend to constrain the americans to within the british empire largely and this to a certain extent is indeed true only insofar as you talk about um sort of maybe within colonial sphere not necessarily uh, within that but if you look at boston new york and philadelphia and you start to dig deeper into the actual data you start to see that there's a much more um, uh, cosmopolitan uh, type of trade going on. They're trading not just with British colonies. They're not trading just with the British metropole. They're actually trading directly with other metropoles, namely Lisbon in particular. But you can talk about France, which is a bit more illegal to the British than, say, for, for the Portuguese. Uh, I can talk about that a little bit if more later if you'd like. But more importantly... These three cities were supposed to be supported fiscally, uh, economically, militarily by the British. Well, that particular imperial capacity just didn't get, just wasn't there for the British. Um, and so Boston, New York, and Philadelphia had to look elsewhere in many ways to find the money needed and, and the good they were supposed to be importing from. The, from London and from the other merchants. And so they couldn't just go through British merchants in order to be able to be economically successful. But at, simultaneously, this puts them in conflict with the actual laws in which they're supposed to obey. And, and at the same time, it actually puts them in competition with the mer- British merchants that they're supposed to be subservient to. And it ultimately puts them uh, in not just conflict with the British state, but by the time we get to the 1760s, you start to see an enormous number of uh, petitions to the British government by British merchants, British based merchants, that are saying, "Hey, you got to really tamp down on these these American merchants. They're getting kind of they're they're really getting into my business here." So that's more of a, a, a it, it's really important to note that that it's not just a Sort of imperial or colonial resistance to imperial rules. It's also colonial um, growth and economic growth coming into conflict with the actual uh, subjects who are supposed to benefit from
0: mercantilism. I mean and and that's probably part of the fascination, or uh, or not. You you mentioned. In your chapter three specifically sugar. And there has been or or there is a a strand of literature that uses sugar and another one uses cotton as measures of globalization. I don't know if you want to expand a little bit of that because this is in the context of of trading commodities and, and later on inter intercolonial. Yeah,
1: I think if you look at these three cities in particular, you have to say that Sugar is a a core uh, commodity for all three economies, but you also have to add uh, fish and grain to that as well. Um, Because most of their trade really is with the West Indies and to the other parts of the colonies on the western half of the Atlantic, um, most of the ships that are going to and from uh, Boston, New York, and Philadelphia are going to places in uh, the West Indies or along the coastal North America. Um, and sugar sort of an, I don't know how to, it, it's, it's really, there's a lot of different ways that sugar play, uh, plays a role in these economies. Um, there's actually a surprisingly large amount of distillation that's occurring in New England in particular, but there's also some happening in Philadelphia New York. Um, they're importing sugar and molasses, raw materials, then producing a, a refined product, which then, you know, increases its value. And then they're also re exporting. It's actually competing fairly well on the market with West Indian rum, for example. It's even the, the even the colonists though who were selling their old rum are saying, no, West Indian rum is better. But still, they could sell those for a little cheaper price. And for, for sailors, it as long as they had rum, they were happy. And that really is an important thing to note. And and I think I think when it comes to sugar, it also had a sort of Extremely, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, symbiotic relationship with grain and and fish. Um, for because the West Indies did not produce enough food for its uh, slave populations, for its labor supply, they were they had to import goods from uh, areas north to be able to feed um, both slaves and the colonists themselves. And so grain shipments were, made sense to ship grain down, pick up sugar, take it back, or molasses, or any of the other byproducts. Um, and another sort of interesting... <laughs> also, sugar refinery happening in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. They actually have some sugar refineries um, uh, developed by the 1760s and 70s, 1770s, mainly because there's actually such an... Uh, an enormous growth and output in the West Indian colonies, they can't just refine it all. And so there happened to be a, a market for it as well. And this continues this symbiotic relationship between um, those three cities especially and the West Indies. This also is, I didn't really di- discuss it too deeply in, in the, uh, the slave plantations and colonies further south in, in North America. Um, Charleston, um, Wilmington, and... Um, uh, some ports along the Virginia coast have are importing a lot of grain and uh, fish also for their for their slaves. So I think it's important. I think it's actually um, uh, you, the plantation economy and these three cities really have this symbiotic relationship, and that helps to in um, sort of. Uh, in case, or not, I think it's really more ensure that this relationship continues to be less reliant on Britain for its economic survival and sort of self-sustaining itself. These colonies, um, I, I I think that's also for adds further to the division that you see later in the seventeen
0: seventies. And in in these divisions and in this self efficiency you've you've mentioned the the trade with. With Portugal, the trade with with Lisbon. I don't know if you want to retake that now.
1: Yeah, uh, that again, we now have another symbiotic relationship, uh, especially with Philadelphia and with Lisbon. Philadelphia is exporting an enormous amount of grain, and most of it is now in flour by the time you get to the 1740s and 50s. And so, you, along with this continued and 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 I wouldn't say exponential, but it, almost exponential growth in the amount of flour uh, grain and flour production that's coming out of Philadelphia, Um, you you see a a milling industry that sort of develops um, locally, which is, it's not industry, but it's sort of proto-industrial development that sets the stage for harnessing the rivers that are in the area for later steel production, which they do have a bit of iron production that goes along with it, but that's less important than grain. Um, But Lisbon was a fantastic market not just for that grain but also for the fish that was coming from Boston um for Catholic nations like uh Portugal and Spain fish was an an extremely important part of the diet um mainly and not just because of lent on Fridays or or for fish Fridays uh but I think it's also uh just sort of part of their overall cultural inheritance is that fish is an extremely important part of their diet um but to, to, cre- to, to sort of get that, and salted cod is a particularly important uh, uh, commodity here. To get the salt that they need, however, they also needed to trade with Lisbon and, and Portugal. It was one of the best sources of salt. In fact, there's multiple cases where um, I, I found in merchants little slips of paper that basically say, hey, can you send me Lisbon salt? I don't want the other stuff. I want Lisbon salt. Lisbon salt's the best for cooking. And, and it, it, you see this multiple times over and over and over again. So consumer preferences have a role in this as well. But there's also wine in Portugal. Uh, my favorite port happens to also be uh, a, an extremely important. And Madeira also um, off the coast of uh, of Portugal. And all these things work together because the grain and the fish had a huge market in Portugal and Spain. They were not as huge, there were not as many, uh, there's not, not much of a market for it in Britain where they're supposed to trade these things. So it made natural sense to just cut the middleman out to go directly to Spain and Portugal, trade their fish and their grain for the wine and the salt and bring that back. They're also picking up other manufacturers as well, but they can't necessarily talk about it as much as they can the salt and the wine. Um, There's a bit of a a gray area when it comes to that whether it's directly legal or uh, overtly legal or, or if it's been sort of allowed because it does show up in the official customs records. Um, there's a lot to be said about Britain's re- relationship with Portugal but that's another book that I'm supposed to be writing later and these are all things that are sort of leading into this um, situation but when you actually put the numbers together and you start to look at both sides of the records you find out that According to the British, um, uh, we we have so many ships coming from Philadelphia per year. But according to the Portuguese, it seems to be almost double the amount, which completely puts a different spin on this. And if we are to able and better able to accurately track this and make it better, feeling is we're about half of total trade for these cities, and that's I think. Um, something i wish i could have given better numbers for in the book but it also gives me something to look forward to beyond this but if we can grasp hold of that that then makes it more sense as to why these british were much more willing to be like hey we got to stop this now we got to put the clamps down and this is it
0: and a naive question how did they pay for that trade so that's actually a a sort of a it's a re
1: it's a re-emerging debate. Uh, Farley Grubb and some others have really started to bring into this discussion about currency and how that's really being developed in the colonial and into the early republic period of the United States. And what I have found is that money is less, the actual currency itself is less important than the goods themselves. They are really the key component for the colonial. They just didn't have enough currency at any given time to really be able to pay for a shipment outright. They tended to rely on bills of credit or bills of exchange. Um, But that's another reason why these colonies were extremely interested in trading with Spain and Portugal and others, because if they can just sell their stuff there, then then buy what they need there, there's actually not a whole lot of stuff they have to, to really exchange. They're essentially a barter economy, but at the same time, it's all being kept in book credits and and, and things are moving from one side of the ledger to the other side of the ledger. Um, and that's another component of this that um, is why there's a chapter two about merchants. <laughs> and this is where you have these very intricate networks that are built on trust, but then there's also sort of pushing the edges of risk, like being a little bit riskier with their their new partnerships. And this does have some shortfalls sometimes. People do get burned in this. But there does seem to be a willingness to have credit with one another. And um, I have found oftentimes a lot of these debts don't get paid until the merchant dies. And it's just a matter of then we just reset and everybody fixes their books, and we move it from there. And and it, it it's really it's really kind of an intre- interesting and complicated system. Um, but at the same time, when Mer- when currency was necessary, and sometimes it was, they used the mix of currency. Spanish dollars were the favorite, of course. Uh, they were the best quality, but oftentimes they they would use whatever they can get their hands on. And there were a couple invoices where there were about. I think there was one in particular, John Hancock, the famous John Hancock, was dealing with, had eight different currency types um, from about three different empires, and so there's a whole lot of mess. I mean, he's putting value to it and everything, and it's actually kind of an interesting story. But, um, and I, I think it's a really, um, I think that's, it's just really interesting, and it's, I I guess I'm a little bit nerdy in that sense. I find all these different. Comp- ways in which they did business uh fascinating um uh, and and hopefully uh, other readers will find it fascinating
0: too yes I' uh, we, we do we do and uh, thank you for 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 the insight um you you end chapter six with a salutatory neglect and the sparks of, of revolution why drawing the line well can you explain what is salutatory neglect? And why draw the line at at the, the start of the revolution? Uh, every book needs an end. I think that's part
1: of it. Uh, the other part is I think you have a changing system. It's um, once you get past the American Revolution, they can trade with whoever they want. There's really nothing that stops them except you know maybe the war itself. Um, but I, I I've really wanted to focus on what I see as a it's hard to call it a myth so much as it's sort of overemphasizing this idea that the British um just sort of let the colonists oh, con- do want oh, it was just and we're like, no, maybe we should probably not be um and I think that's an incorrect view of things because at all times the British were trying to stop the smuggling or what they perceived as smuggling. Um, to stop this trans imperial trade, to sort of put the clamps on 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 these three cities in particular, but in general, all of the the North American colonies. Um and I I, I the more I've read and the more I've done research into this, I realize that they're really trying very hard. They just don't have the capacity to really control an empire as big as they have. In many ways the British for lack of better words, were just lucky in holding on to what they had. Uh, They just happened to be stronger than the other empires. And I think there's been a lot of really good research. Uh, Antoinette Burton is really the one that started me um, thinking about um, how this this actually uh, functions by talking about how this local resistance from indigenous and from local colonists, um, there was a constant interplay between the colonies and the the, the the empire and there's this constant negotiation that has to be done over and over and over again, every generation, every year for that matter. Um there are many times there's a couple of instances where um the British actually sent a naval blockade to islands in the in the the West Indies to try to get the, the, the governor to actually do what they wanted them to do. Um and I, I, I I'm the more i f- the more I read the less impressive the British imperial state becomes. This isn't necessarily surprising because usually when you get a little closer, there's always a bit more gray area. But I think there's actually uh, in I think it's actually important to note this because there's this idea that it's just sort of the colonies do their own thing. Um, And I don't, I don't want to say that they're wrong, but I think we need to maybe pull that emphasis back and say that the British just couldn't quite get there. And that's really what it was. And it wasn't just about imperial control is also about actually having the financial and economic capacity to have a mercantilistic empire. Uh, you have to ask the question, was this even possible? Like the idea is great. Okay. But how do we actually uh, do this? Uh, do, can we actually buy all the things that all the stuff that the colonies produce and then resell it someplace else? I think that's, I, I think if we don't ask that question a bit stronger of the historical record, I think we're missing a huge, huge part of the discussion. Um, and I, I think having that discussion at the very end of this book um, helps me, I think, answer that question that my advisor asked me was, why Boston? Why the occupation in Boston? That was essentially my answer, chapter. But you have to have the previous five chapters to really get a sense of what why that answer is that way.
0: And we we've, we've talked about historical record, but we haven't really talked about what sources have you used to to rebuild this story. I mean, there's clearly a, a secondary or there is a, a a discussion out there that you draw on, and then. Um, what sort of um, sources do you use? And, and, and there are there any opportunities for innovation in terms of use of sources or combining different uh, discussions or, or where, where do you see yourself um, innovating or contributing to, to, to the discussion other than, you know, to be able to put this, this argument forward? Yeah,
1: I think if I were to say I was innovative in any sense, it was that I was innovative out of necessity. Um, when you don't have a massive amount of funds to go and do the research you really need to do, you have to get what you can when you can. Um, and so what I did is instead of really counting you know, um, secondary compilations of data were wrong so much, I, I really just kind of took it and then said, hey, is there a way that we can reorganize this to sort of answer more questions to to be able to pose more questions and then after that i realized there's more questions to ask and then it allowed me to go into the historical arc i was especially in boston and philadelphia to say okay and there's not a very fancy way of saying what i'm about to say but it really just took a lot of time looking at a lot of different um documents taking photos and then looking at them from plane ride to plane ride um looking at everything and just honestly, uh, gorging myself on the historical archive so that I could understand. Because there were two questions that came up when I started doing this research. It's like, okay, what's the record? What, what do, what kind of data do we have now? Okay. So you look to the regular places, you look at, you look at the Leonard Williamson stuff. You look at the, 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 uh, McCusker Menard book. You look at the, um, Shepard and Walton book, and these are all things. And in many cases, what I found was that the Shepherd and Walton book is essentially the source of data for everybody else. And it's fantastic. There's nothing wrong with this data. It's the most complete record we have for colonial trade. And it's only for f- essentially five years, 1768 to 1772. And then I asked the question, okay, what does the archive itself ha- have? And that allowed me to just go right into, grab every merchant paper I could get my hands on, what time I had available. I, I copied everything. I photographed everything I can get my hands on. And honestly, the next question that comes up was, okay, well, how did they do business? It was similar to your question. Well, how do they do it? How do they actually do this? And you know what? There's not really a great article out there or a book out there that explains this in very good detail. And so I had to do it myself by looking at the records, uh, talking with scholars about what they've seen in the record, um, and I don't want to And I, I really don't want to make it very clear. There's a part in my acknowledgement where I say that this is. There's no such thing as a single author book. There's really not, because these conversations with other scholars, especially at all the conferences that I've organized and taken part in, which I've been very lucky to be able to do, has has really shaped my thoughts on this because its ability to ask, okay, what did you see when you went to the archive? Okay, what did you find here? And and it's not just asking about archives in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. It's about archives in general in the 18th century. It's like, what's there? Um, and then I moved beyond that and said, OK, what's the digital archive say as well? Because the digital archive is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but there's a fundamental problem with that, and that is they're all very decentralized. There's nothing that says this is here, there, there, and there, and there. Um, and so newspapers became extremely important. This is where I was able to recompile the entries and clearances from Philadelphia because there's great compilations in the past, but they don't show me their work. And I needed it divided down to actual specific locations so that I could reorganize them into trans-imperial destinations, intracolonial destinations, and then to Britain so that you could really see the comparison between how many of these ships are flowing to these different places. and And I would be... It sounds sort of it sounds a bit boasting, but I, I most certainly looked at tens of thousands of documents throughout this entire process. And I still look at these things and I still find stuff that I didn't see before. And I, I think if economic historians were to be a bit more um, bold, I think is the word, and to actually go into these archives a bit more, I think we could probably put a more of a human face to these numbers from time to time. And I think that's an important distinguishment is what I tried to do is try to, yes, this is an economic history book. Yes, this is going to have a very analytical structure to it. And yes, there's going to be an argument to it, but there's also people that are actually moving these things around. There's, there's, there's actually something behind it. Um, and it doesn't always come through in the book. I realize this, but I always want to make sure that there, the documents that I used have a, a human history to it. Um. And that's something that I'm trying to do with my future research is try to think about how we can create digital sources and databases that reflect that very thing, that reflect the source where it came from, and not just pull the data out and say, this is data that I found in this place, but really try to reflect what how they perceived it. Because if you don't understand exactly why they wrote the invoice in the format that they did, you might actually miss the fact that they're doing it for a reason. There's a practical reason why they're doing it in this way. You also can understand a little bit more as to why Bostonians would trade more frequently with, say, Lisbon or with Portuguese than the All right? But it also, if you think about the way that they organize themselves and if even just even just the, the way ships are loaded themselves, just having the understanding of the that, goods occurred and why it happened that way. Um, yes, you can have a bigger argument at the end of it, but you can also uh, have a bit more practical reasons for why they're trading with, say, um, uh, Haiti instead of, say, Jamaica. There's 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 really good reasons, usually.
0: Great stuff. Well, uh, Jerry Milan, it's been a pleasure to have you you're at the New Books Network today. You've you've told us also on on, on what your plans for the future are. And I, I do envy you having to spend time in in Portugal looking at some of these uh records. And uh wish you all the best and to have you back when when that new monograph is is out.
1: Be happy to be back. Thank you, Bernardo.